It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You're listening to the Inside Syracuse Basketball Podcast, presented by Krauss Health, the exclusive healthcare partner of Syracuse Athletics. Well, welcome back to a special edition of the Inside Syracuse Basketball Podcast. As we begin a series of podcasts leading up to February 24th when Syracuse plays Notre Dame at the JMA Wireless Dome. Uh, and on that day, Syracuse University is going to recognize the career of Jim Beheim. Uh, generally his coaching career, but also a playing career at Syracuse University. And to start us off here with some remembrances of Jim Beheim. I uh, brought in one of his former teammates at Syracuse University, a member of the same recruiting class uh, back in 1962, Rex Trowbridge. Rex, it's a privilege and honor to have you here on the podcast. Welcome. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Well, uh, just before we got going, we were sort of saying, you know, we were talking about this day when Syracuse is going to recognize Jim Beheim, And you were just saying, you know, how... Uh, well-deserved this honor is for Jim. It's really quite remarkable. I can't think off the top of my head of any coach uh, who has coached for 47 years, much less at the same school where they began. And his overall time was over 60 years uh, from when he walked on in September of 1962 and then never left following uh, working as a graduate assistant while he was playing um, basketball for uh, Scranton Wilkes-Barre in the Eastern League. Uh, and uh, w- went to grad school, got his master's degree, was an assistant coach, and went on to become the head coach when Roy Danforth left for Greener Pastures. And uh, so it's really, uh, it's really quite a remarkable record. So let's go back to 1962. You know, you, you know, Jim's in part of this recruiting class as a walk-on. Uh, the class also includes the legendary Dave Bing, yourself, your, your high school teammate, Dick Abelman, Sam Pensiel out of New York City, Frank Nicoletti out of New Jersey. I mean, it's really a, an amazing recruiting class. And I was wondering, since Jim's a walk-on and you guys are all scholarship players, what, was, what are your first memories of Jim? What were your first impressions of him? Well, interestingly enough, my my first memory of Jim, which I think is accurate, but in the space of 60 plus years, sometimes memories are distorted. Uh, I first met Jim uh, at Dolph Shea's basketball camp uh, in the summer of 1961. Uh, when uh, I, I attended, it was uh, before our senior year uh, in uh, in college. And I have a recollection, however dim it may be, uh, of meeting him at Dolph Jays. Now, if he were to say, no, no, Rex, I wasn't there. You're fabricating this. I wouldn't be surprised. I'm pushing 80. 
but the, I do have a, a, a recollection of meeting him there. When we came uh, on campus in September of 62, and we had our first meeting uh, in a conference room at Manley Fieldhouse, that was when uh, the team first came together, received the um, opening words uh, of the coach. Uh, we even received a poem that he gave us on the unfillable hole. Um, and I found that poem still online where you can put your hand in a bucket of water and you can stir around and make quite a maelstrom. But when you remove your hand, uh, the water stills um, and it's, the quiet remains. And his message to us as a group of pretty highly recruited people was basically uh, that you can make a lot of noise, but, uh, you know, it, to, to remind us to be humble. But Jim was uh, was at that meeting, along with Dave and the re and the rest of us, um, and really uh, didn't you know pleasant guy hadn't met and met him except for that brief interval at the summer camp, and uh, so it was uh, it was great meeting our fellow teammates. I really didn't know any of them except for Dip Dick Abelman, uh, my high school teammate, uh, and it was uh, it was pretty exciting for for me. Uh, speaking uh, for myself, and I suspect for the other people, to begin our college basketball career that that way. So, you know, I, Jim comes in as a walk-on, and I've talked to some of your other teammates, and, you know, they'll, they'll make the jokes. You know, we've all heard it before. Oh, you know, he's got the glasses. He's skinny. Even Jim tells the story this way. Um, but we all know he had a little bit of game once he got on the court. You know, what, what was your – do you remember seeing him play uh, for the first time, maybe even like in a pickup game or a practice before your, your freshman season starts? Yes, I, I yeah. Before the before the official season began, when we would we would have the uh, first official practice, uh, we were pretty much expected uh, to go over to Archbald Gym and to participate in the pickup games. Uh, my recollection is that sometimes the coaches were in the far distance looking on and uh, to see what was going on, uh, but they weren't allowed to have con direct contact and be coaching up the players. Right. Uh, but yeah, we would, we would have regular pickup games and, uh, uh, it was pretty clear. Um, now speaking as one who was, who was probably taller than I was talented, shall we say. And I, I, uh, say that in respect to, uh, the raw athleticism that you often see, uh, today, uh, Jim and I were probably somewhat similar in, in that respect, at least with respect to our fortunes weren't going to be made based upon our raw athletic ability. But uh, from the very beginning, one of the things about Jim was he was the guy who was in the right place at the right time. He knew and understood the game. Um, his feet, while they may not have been the fleetest feet on the court, always seemed to be in the right place. And he had that gift of great anticipation uh, and uh, was just one of those players who knew and understood the game. So, he, he, and if you were open, Jim would find you. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you see qualities in him back then that made you think that he would someday be uh, successful as a basketball coach? Oh, yeah, yes and no. <laughs> yeah, yes and okay. no, in the sense that uh, it was very clear, and looking back at the, the years that we spent together as teammates, 
uh, Jim was a real basketball mind. He knew and understood the game. Uh, I never, I honestly never considered myself to be the student of the game, uh, but Jim was. And I would say even from our earliest, uh, the times that we would play together, uh, he, he demonstrated those qualities. Now, would we have expected, would that have translated to a guy who led uh, a, an elite program for 47 years? Probably not. That was truly remarkable and over the top. Uh, but it really didn't surprise me, although my recollection was that he went on, got his master's degree, uh, I think in history, uh, was, was looking at a, at a career as a teacher, if I recall correctly. Uh, and so perhaps maybe he even surprised himself with respect to uh, the flight that his career took. I would imagine he did. I mean, no, nobody has, uh, you know, that much ego to think that they would, <laughs> right? When you're 22 years old and you're in college, do you really think you're going to coach somewhere for 47 years and win over a thousand games? I don't, I don't think, no. I don't think so. Um, so you played with him uh, under Fred Lewis, your all's coach at the time, the man that recruited all of you. Um, did you see any of the things that Fred Lewis taught or used uh, that Jim then incorporated in, in as a head coach? Um, well, we played a little bit of zone defense. So uh, <laughs> the, the vaunted 2-3 zone uh, may be uh, part of Fred Lewis's legacy. Um, but it's, um, uh, you know, I think what some of us old guys uh, see now in the evolution, perhaps devolution of the game, is that the athletes today are are so good and so athletic uh, and that uh, sometimes they rely on that raw athleticism rather than basketball 101 the skills that we that we looked uh, that we looked to we were uh, except for Dave uh, who was uh, uh, an air maven before it became popular uh, most of us, uh, were not known for renowned for our leaping ability. So we actually had to box out when the, when the ball went up and Fred coached us. One of the things Fred did, and I don't know, uh, I don't know whether Jim has incorporated this, but every year, uh, as practice began, we would go back to basketball 101 and, uh, basically would relearn the basics that kids are taught or are supposed to be taught when they're eight years old, how to throw a correct chest pass, popping the back of the hands together to get the pop on the ball, how to uh, set a screen, how to roll to the basket with the defender on your hip and, and all of this basic, and it would be teaching slow to fast, simple to complex in terms of the instructions. Now, I don't know if they still do that, but Fred was certainly meticulous Jim was there, so I would guess that he would incorporate some of those techniques and styles in, in his subsequent coaching. Now, I've heard and read in, in some of the biographies about Jim that he was quite accomplished at everything from ping pong to pool to cards. I was wondering if you had any experiences with him in those areas. I can't say that I did, but Jim was very, very, very competitive, and uh, I saw... Uh, I saw him get into it. And Jim, again, was not the biggest guy in the world uh, in terms of raw size. I think he was about 6'4", maybe 6'5", uh, maybe about 165 pounds. 
uh, not an, uh, an, an uh, overwhelming physical appearance, but Jim didn't back away. Uh, and I can remember a game uh, where we played Pitt, uh, and they had a guy who had been a high school All-American football player by the name of Brian Generalovich. And Brian came down the court. Uh, the only thing between him and the basket was Jim Beheim on the free throw line. He might have gone around Jim either way, but instead he decided to go over him, and Jim took the charge and was knocked into about the third row where the football players at Manly Fieldhouse used to sit under the uh, under the baskets. And I think he got knocked into about the third row, uh, but he didn't back down. He, he, he took the charge. I saw him in a few times. One time after we had graduated, we were playing in a tournament uh, after we after, in our senior year, after the season was over, we were playing in a tournament, I think, in Binghamton. And I can remember Jim getting into it with somebody on, on the court because he was competitive. He was a fiery competitor and he wasn't about to back down. I never saw him throw hands, uh, so I don't know how he would have done. <laughs> but uh, he wasn't he wasn't the guy who was going to back down from a con from a conflict. Well, he went on and he played in the Eastern League, which was a rough and tumble league. So you'd have to be able to either stick up for yourself or know when to get out of the way. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think Richie Cornwall played in that for that same team, if I'm not mistaken. Wilkes-Barre Scranton, I, yep. I, think, I think it was. And uh, yeah, the Eastern League was, uh, they were rough and tumble. Yeah, the Scranton Miners back in the yeah. day. You know, I've always been intrigued uh, in the in the racial dynamic of your recruiting class, that first class that Fred Lewis brings in, because when you consider it's the early '60s, and it was just a few years earlier, 1957, when you know Syracuse had a lineup where they wouldn't put three black players in the starting lineup, and then here you are five years later, Fred Lewis comes in, and in his very first recruiting class, he recruits two very high-profile black players in Sam Penseal and Dave Bing. And then I just marvel at what Fred did then. He he didn't have the black players room together. He split them up. You know, he he had Dave and, and Sam rooming with with white players. And I was just wondering what impact you think that had on yourself, the team, and and, and also Jim. Well, I'm really glad you asked that question. That's a very that's a very good observation. Um, as a matter of fact. Sam Pensiel uh, was my roommate my freshman year. Uh, and um, Sam and I, when we showed up on campus, we were both 17 years old. Uh, I was probably 17 going on 12 in terms of my maturity and having grown up in a lily white community in the town of Bethlehem, uh, just outside of Albany. Yeah. Uh, and Sam was probably 17 going on 46, having grown up in a much bigger world than I grew up in. He grew up in Harlem. Uh, and uh, so I think it was, I don't know uh, who was more shocked and challenged by the experience of rooming with, with someone, whether it was Sam with this young, naive kid, uh, or whether it was me with this guy that I would listen to the stories and it was like, really? Uh, <laughs> but um, Sam and I are very dear friends to this day uh, and, and very close friends, talk pretty regularly. Um, and one of the interesting things is that we've never talked about race. We never then in the day talked about race. Uh, 
Um, it was, was just, guy, you know, we roomed with whom we roomed with. Uh, and, and I guess whatever happened, happened. But in retrospect, it was certainly very positive. Uh, but when I worked, my real career was with the National Education Association, 31 years in labor relations. Mm -hmm. And in the course of that, I was involved in uh, a number of sessions of diversity training. And in the course of that, with mixed racial groups, uh, I heard stories of the experiences of African-Americans that I had never heard before. It certainly wasn't part of my world. And I was honestly shocked and stunned to hear some of those stories about what a day in their life was like. Mm -hmm. And I subsequently had conversations in more recent years with both Sam and Dave and saying, did this happen to you? Profiling some of these experiences. And, and I think uh, Sam just laughed at me, said, of course it did, and told a couple of stories. And it was shocking to me because I grew up in kind of a cloistered, again, lily white, for lack of a better term, community. Uh, and uh, so it was just not part of my experience. But Fred, uh, you know, did uh, bring, uh, bring the roommates together. Uh, the year of our senior year, the uh, team that started five African-Americans won the NCAA championship that year. So that was a huge breakthrough. And that kind of opened the doors to the world that we see today, where uh, even coaches that had been at schools that would never recruit uh, a black player, uh, I think, finally uh, had an epiphany and said, we better start recruiting the best athletes, regardless of color, or we're going to get left behind. You know, so. it's interesting. You're referring to the 1966 Texas Western team with Don Haskins as their head coach. It's now Texas El Paso, UTEP. You guys were one game away from being in that same Final Four. We were. Uh, you know, for a school that had very little basketball success, this recruiting class that came together, uh, Fred's, Fred Lewis's first class, but your senior year, you make it to the Eastern Region, region Finals and lost a heartbreaker to Duke. We did. In Raleigh, North been, Carolina, by the way. Duke had a very long trip. <laughs> Interestingly enough, we were uh, averaging 100 points a game until until that game when we scored in the 80s, and we ended up averaging for the season 99.9 .9 points a game uh, before the three-point shot or the, sh or the shot clock. So uh, uh, we had a pretty running team that year. <laughs> I, I can't believe you guys were able to average that many points a game with no shot clock and no three-point shot. It's just amazing. Yeah, it was really remarkable. And we also had a pressing defense from just about beginning to end, forcing a whole lot of turnovers. So we were definitely a transition team. And I will say, and again, I don't know how, I don't see too many teams. I don't see really any teams showing the discipline in a fast break that we would practice hour after hour after hour where the outlet pass following a rebound went to a certain spot on the court. That took the ball into the middle. Two lanes filled on the outside, uh, and then uh, the, uh, the ball in the middle would stop at the free throw line unless they had a clear lane to the basket because the free throw line was a yield sign. It wasn't a stop sign, uh, and, but the lanes would fill. So it was, it was a totally disciplined fast break that we would uh, practice hour after hour. And I, I, I don't really see that sort of a thing, even teams that fast break. I don't see that sort of a disciplined approach with anybody these days. So, Do you ever get a chance to go to Jim's hometown of Lyons, New York? 
I did not. I heard some funny stories about uh, uh, about that when uh, I think Dave and uh, I think Frank Nicoletti might have gone, I, I think our freshman year, home uh, for Thanksgiving dinner uh, at, uh, at Jim's house. And uh, Jim's house, uh, they shared the, uh, the uh, house with a funeral parlor. His dad uh, uh, was a funeral director and, and in the house, it was a, a funeral parlor. And, uh, uh, and the other thing was that they also had a pretty big dog, I think a German shepherd. We heard stories when they came back uh, that uh, uh, the German shepherd, apparently a friendly dog to some people, but not everyone loves dogs, would put his head on the lap during dinner. And there was a, uh, uh, as they say, there was a stiff in the next room. Uh, so uh, I, I think I especially heard from Dave that uh, he was not enamored of being in there with with a, a body in the in the next room. But that was just part of Jim's growing up. You know, that was the world he lived in. Absolutely. Uh, you know, a few weeks ago, many of you guys from that you know 1964 to 66 era, even beyond George. You know, guys like George Hicker were there, too. You came back together to Syracuse because Dave Bing was being inducted into the Ring of Honor. What was, this, what was that weekend like to be back amongst all the guys, and especially Jim? It was a very special weekend for, for all of us. Um, Chuck Richards came up from North Carolina. Uh, Frank Nicoletti uh, came up from, I think he's in New York City now, a uh, lawyer in New York City. Uh, and uh, George came in from California. Dave, of course, was there with uh, with family. Sam Pensile, uh came in, uh, and it was really a wonderful opportunity for us to get together. You know, uh, I don't think I appreciated it at the time, sixty years ago when we were playing, uh, that there is a Syracuse University basketball family. I've certainly come to believe that in more recent years that really transcends the generations. I'm very good friends with Sonny Spira, for example, and other, uh, and other uh, guys uh, from different generations. Uh, and uh, it, it was really wonderful to get back in. As we are pushing 80, some of us are over 80. Uh, I'll be there in, next September. Uh, Chuck is, well, is uh, several years older. He was a transfer in from Army. Dave turned 80. Uh, Jim uh, will be 80 next November. Uh, and uh, some of us are not playing over the rim these days. So we never know what tomorrow's going to bring, and we've had the experience of uh, empty chairs around the table. Carl Vernick, uh, who was a member of the team when we first got there, passed away, I think, in January, uh, and uh, uh, Richie Duffy last spring, uh, and uh, a number of uh, other empty seats at, at the table. So we, we never know what tomorrow will bring, and the sense, I think, not perhaps only speaking for myself, but having talked with some of the other guys, was that this was really special uh, for us to come back together uh, because it could be in some ways the last hurrah, not only because somebody's going to pass away, but because travel becomes a whole lot more of a challenge as we as we reach that point. And especially air travel is such an unsavory experience these days uh, that uh, people are not really eager to do it as it becomes more of a challenge. So, yeah, it was really special for us to come together uh, and reach back 60 years to some some pretty great memories for us. You know, when you mentioned this Syracuse basketball family, 
and it's funny. I see it with all you guys, you know, the, the, you and Nicoletti and Pencil and Dave Bang, and you guys are all still close. And, but I see it, the guys that were there in the early eighties, you know, Gene Waldron, uh, you know, Sonny Spera, all those guys, Tony Bruin, they're still close. You go later eighties, early nineties and Derek Coleman, Stevie Thompson, Billy Owens, Herman Harid, they're still up there. And we see them all the time. And then all through the years, and I'm wondering how big of a role in all this Syracuse family staying together is due to Jim Beheim being here throughout it all, and especially 47 years as the head coach? Well, he's certainly been a constant. He was certainly a constant for all of us, for the different generations. Uh, and uh, I don't know whether it was through his influence or just the fact that we shared a common bond and common experiences, uh, you know, with the uh, Sonny and uh, and some of the other players that uh, I've been close to. One time we came back for a Syracuse alumni basketball weekend. Brought my it would always bring my grandsons back in the early days when I was still playing in the alumni games. I would bring my nephew, uh, who ended up playing at Bucknell, ended up playing in Europe, play, ended up playing for the Washington Generals, losing games all over the world. <laughs> um, but I would bring, I would bring, uh, my, you know, my family back and my, and my, uh, sons and, and then my grandsons, uh, back. And, um, a few years ago, uh, I was, uh, uh, talking, I think in the strength and conditioning, uh, room because I have a background in strength and conditioning and chatting, chatting with them and, uh, looked out and my grandson, Scott Trowbridge, uh, was out on the court with one of the other guys. Uh, and he was coaching him up on the finer points. Scott played. He was actually supposed to play in college, and he ended up doing ROTC instead. But it was just a great example of, you know, I brought my kids up, and some of the other players were looking out for him and taking care of him and coaching him up. Uh, you know, so it was, uh, it was really a great, great experience. Last question for you, Rex, before we let you go. Um, what do you think Jim Beheim's legacy is? Because it's a big one, right? It is a very big one. It is a very big one. And, you know, uh, I uh, am one who uses social media perhaps more than I should. Uh, and during the last couple of years when the team was struggling a bit and Jim was drawing quite a bit of fire from various people, uh, I will probably become unpopular for saying this, but I always wondered with the harshest critics, how many of them had ever played basketball, especially at a high level. Uh, they seem to have all of the answers to the problems, but uh, I was not really persuaded of their credentials to, uh, to do that. But I think uh, sometimes uh, the immediacy of news and things is changed by the perspective of history, okay. which has a little bit more of a dispassionate view. Uh, and I think uh, the, the history of collegiate basketball will look back on Jim and say this was really a remarkable guy who had a remarkable record over, over many, many years. So I think he will be ver viewed very well. His legacy is assured, I believe. Excellent, Rex. Listen, thank you so much. This has been a, a pleasure. Uh, it's always good chatting with you. And I'm glad we could finally get you on the podcast, especially for this special occasion, what's going to be a special week leading all the way up to this Saturday, February 24th at the JMA Wireless Dome. So 
Thank you for joining us here on the podcast. And for those out there listening in, we'll see you next time. Join us next time for the Inside Syracuse Basketball Podcast presented by Krauss Health, the exclusive healthcare partner for Syracuse Athletics.